0: Father, we thank you for uh, times of rest, relaxation. We also thank you that you provide for us work. It provides purpose for us, gives us direction in our lives. And Father, also, we thank you for the times that we have to just study, look at your word, that it prepares us for the trials in this life, the things that lie ahead. You let us know the difficulties that are out there and how to avoid them. But, Father, you also call us to a life that is obedient to what your word says. As we look at Matthew chapter 24, Father, we would ask that you would bless the information that we have here, that you would move us on the inside, that you would keep us aware of what is taking place around us and where we are going, what our destiny ultimately is. And may this affect us in a way that we become your disciples not only in life personally, but that we might be able to affect others. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you've heard that 25 to 30% of the Bible is prophecy. Since I've been listening to teachers over the course of my Christian experience, it's gone from 25% to 30%. 30% of the Bible is prophecy is what they've said. I decided to look that up. According to the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy by J. Barton Payne, there are 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament and 578 prophecies in the New Testament for a total of 1,817 prophecies. Now, these prophecies are contained in 8,352 verses, and since there are a total of 31,124 verses in the Bible... The 8,352 verses that contain prophecy constitute 26.8% prophecy in the Bible. I knew you were dying to know that, so I just wanted to let you know. 26.8% of the Bible is prophetic. So a little over 25%. We want to make sure that if there's 25% of the Bible dedicated to this, that we understand it. The only problem is it can be a little bit confusing. Because it's not in chronological order. Now, I'm going to be setting the table here, but first I'd like to just review Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, that kind of jettisons us into the subject of prophecy. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of the coming, of your coming, and of the end of the age? And I told you before when we were together last time. This is known as the Olivet Discourse because it's delivered on the Mount of Olives. Jesus told them these answers as he left the Temple Mount area, traveled through the Kidron Valley, back up to the Mount of Olives, and they were looking back towards the temple and its complex. But as Jesus is speaking these things, when it goes from verse 3 to the next verse 4, there is something that is omitted there, probably on purpose, but it, certainly on purpose, but it's very important for us. It's a big deal. Now, this big deal is called the rapture. Now, you've heard of me talk about the rapture before. The last time we were together, I gave you the verses, and we're going to look at those eventually today, Lord willing. But the rapture of the church <clears throat> is what's left out here, and then it immediately jumps in this discourse, the Olivet Discourse, it jumps to the seven years of tribulation. So the only thing that is left to be fulfilled before the tribulation starts is the rapture. And so Jesus is simply delivering to his disciples what's going to happen during that period of time. Now, it has been talked about in the Old Testament. It was made more clear and more fully understandable in the New Testament. But it's always wise to give a timeline for what is transpiring here. Because if you look at the whole of prophecy, to put things in order, how they're going to transpire, it's a difficult task. It's not impossible, but it is difficult. And people come up with all kinds of varying views on this. And if you can relate it to a puzzle, imagine you have a puzzle and each puzzle piece is a part of prophecy. Now, when Bible scholars, exegetes, go to the scriptures and they try to figure out what comes in what order, they grab these pieces of the puzzle and they start putting them together. The only problem with that is there are churches that place the pieces of the puzzle together in a different order. Like some people will say, for instance, the rapture doesn't happen at the beginning of the tribulation, it happens at another time. There are also churches that leave pieces of the puzzle completely out. They say, "Ah, there is no rapture. We're throwing that piece away. And they just toss it. And they say, well, that just doesn't belong. That doesn't belong in our point of view of Scripture. And there are still others who change the faces of the puzzle pieces altogether. They say, well, that's not what that means. And they put a new piece of paper over it. They glue it on there and they say, that fits right here. And so there's all these confusing views which are out there. Why is it so confusing? Why does it happen this way that there are so many churches that believe so many different things about prophecy? Well, to put it in simple terms, it's hermeneutics. Of course, you all know what that means, right? It's the study of interpretation of the scriptures. There's a way to interpret the scriptures. Some people look at it and they don't interpret interpret it literally hardly at all. They interpret it symbolically they don't give it its actual meaning and there are these words you just heard me use one eisegete and exegete exegete is where you take the whole of scripture on any subject you would take 26.8 percent of the bible lay it all out in front of you and attempt to decipher what's going on if you're interested in prophecy If you're interested in another subject, say, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, you find every single verse that applies to that. It's called inductive Bible study. You pull it out, you line it up, and you get a coherent idea of what it means to be married, remarried, divorced, all of those things, all in a line, and you can figure it out. It's pretty easy. That's called exegesis. Eisegesis is where somebody says... Well, you know, I believe we're reincarnated. I'm going to find some verses that say that. And somebody looks into the scripture and tries to find a verse that talks about that. When I was uh, years ago over at Calvary Chapel La Mesa serving as an elder there, the assistant pastor and myself, we sat down and we went through demon possession of a Christian. Is it possible? And we had this book, I think it's C.I. Iverson or I.C. Iverson, I forget his initials. But we went through it and he said, well, Paul, Paul was possessed by a demon because he had this thorn in the flesh. That's what it was. And Saul in the Old Testament was possessed by a demon because the harpist would have to come. I think it was David that had to come and he played the harp and then Saul was soothed and the demon would leave him. And so he was possessed and it gives all these examples in scripture and of course. I do not believe that a demon can possess a Christian believer. And so we went through that, we divided it up, and we both came to the conclusion, nope, and we did exegesis, not eisegesis like this author of this particular book did. And so that's what happens when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture. Now I'm going to break this down a little farther. Some interpret the Scriptures in a literal fashion and others in a symbolic fashion. Some interpret the scriptures without using the full context of the Bible or the passage that, that they're in. Some interpret the scriptures based on error. This is the eisegesis as opposed to the exegesis. And some interpret the Bible in such a way to gain money. That's what they want to do. They interpret it for their own ends. Now, there are many other ways that people interpret the scriptures. These are just four. Let me give you a <coughs> excuse me literal as opposed to symbolic interpretation of the scripture. There are times where the scripture needs to be taken literally and times where it needs to be taken a little more symbolically. It's not so hardcore. I'd like you to turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Now I've gone through this with the men's study a little bit just to give you an idea of how there are those who will interpret the scriptures and they want to maintain a symbolic view of what the scripture has to say ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2 now if you notice in your bible you have a bunch of indents it's not solid words from side to side on the column or columns that you have there there are indents what that indicates in most every bible some bibles don't have it but most every bible that indicates poetry you have to be careful about interpreting poetry literally now there are literal aspects to what's being said you have to decide what those are but what's being talked is, uh, talked about is usually in a more metaphorical sense. For instance, verse 2 says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What does a man gain from all his labor and which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. How long does the earth remain? According to the text, how long does the earth remain? Forever that's what it says now let me ask you a question does the earth remain forever if you were an astronomer would you say the earth remains forever no if you go on i think it's the next verse or two down there it says the sun rises and the sun sets does that happen no the earth rotates the sun doesn't rise and set the earth rotates so if you want to be accurate you know you you would say it in a scientific manner but the bible is not meant to be a scientific book And so what he's talking about here, it's more metaphorical language from the original message that he has there in verses two, uh, in verse two, he says, meaningless, meaningless. And if you read the whole context of what's going on, you would say, well, you know, he's making a point that everything goes on just as it was from the beginning and you live and you die and the sun comes up and the sun sets and the earth just seems to go on forever and there's a generation come and a generation go and that's the way things are and he says life is meaningless what's the purpose of life if that's the way things are and of course at the end of the book he answers that but through the heart of the book he's just saying everything is meaningless And we need to make sure we don't get wrapped up in the meaninglessness of this life that we're looking for the next one. And so you look at this, and if you said, well, the earth remains forever, I I think the men know who believes this. Do you guys remember who believes this? The earth will be here forever. It's the Jehovah Witnesses that believe this. They believe it's never going to go away. The only problem with that, you have to take it in context. So what they did is they took a symbolic phrase and made it literal. Where it's supposed to be, no, you're supposed to take it symbolically. And when I've talked to them before, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Now, when you turn over there, you will see that it's listed in columns. There is not these indents in the passage in 2nd peter chapter 3 which means it's in a narrative form somebody is just telling you this is the way it is it's like writing a letter they're just narrating what has taken place and here this is a narration about our future we're going to witness this says but the day of the lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way what kind of people ought you to be now if this is in a narrative form and ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2 is in a symbolic form which one should you believe The one in the narrative form, the one in the symbolic form, is meant to make a point about the meaninglessness of life in the context in which it is delivered. Let me give you another one. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 27. Here we find out that the earth is also again going to be destroyed. It says in verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 12, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things. So he tells us again, everything that's created is going to be removed. And the final one, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, I'll just read it to you here. It says, new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So this earth is going to be destroyed. Anything that we have here is going to rust, dust, bust, crack, chip. it's just all going to go away including our bodies they're going to go away there will not be anything that remains whatsoever and so if somebody takes something that's symbolic and makes it literal or somebody takes something that's literal and makes it symbolic they both err now I'll explain a little more about that in a minute what about the out of context interpretation if you guys remember when we went through Matthew chapter 18 it was dealing with Church discipline. If somebody sins against you, you by yourself go and talk to the person, show them their fault, and if they repent, you have gained your brother or your sister. Basically, it outlines how we're to deal with the idea of forgiveness and seeking out forgiveness. But some people, they go to one of the passages there, one of the verses, it's through 19 and 20. It says, "concerning prayer, if two or three, they think it's concerning prayer. It says, "If two or three agree on anything in my name, there I am in the midst." They incorrectly say that if two people are together and they are praying, Jesus is in the midst, then." And they kind of negate the idea, well, what if it's just one person praying? Is Jesus not there in the midst? well, they will say, well, no, it's no more powerful if you have corporate prayer as opposed to one person praying. And Scripture doesn't teach that at all. And it's out of context. You know, the word prayer is not even used in this section. And so the people that say, where two or three are gathered together, let us pray. And they'll go on this prayer thing. And they're misinterpreting the Scripture, what it has to say. It is not a treatise. It is not an essay. It is not a directive on prayer. It is simply stating that if you bind anything on earth, or on earth, it'll be bound in heaven. And what is bound in heaven will be bound in earth. It's idea of binding and loosing that type of thing. Well, you know, that was a, uh, a Hebraism that was used by the rabbis. And the rabbis were simply stating that if you loose something, you have the freedom to practice it. If you bind something, you have a restriction and you're not allowed to practice it. If all you have to do is do a search through cultural history of the Jews and that's how they would talk. Well, when it comes to binding and loosing, people have misinterpreted that as well. And they say, well, that's how you bind and loose demons. Demons. You ask Jesus to come in and you say, be bound in the name of Jesus. And they take this scripture out of context. I don't want to be fighting with any demons. I want Jesus to handle it. Not even Michael the archangel fought with Satan. And so I'm just staying out of that. I say, Jesus, could you take care of this? And he goes, no problem. And he goes and takes care of it. He takes care of those demons. And we're not to be involved in stuff like that thinking that we're going to overcome demons. Do you think we're more powerful than demons? And people would say, well, no, but Jesus in us is. Yeah, so ask Jesus. We have no power whatsoever. It is only the power that we have in Jesus. So that is an out-of-context misinterpretation of Scripture. Now, this also, I'm, I'm giving you this because it's also done with prophecy. People do the same thing. Now, also, exegete as opposed to exegete, or somebody finds Scriptures that match their doctrine rather than have the doctrine come out of the scriptures they have a preconceived idea of what a doctrine is and they look for scripture to try to make that fit for instance in romans chapter 9 verse 22 maybe you're familiar with this what if god choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction people take that verse and they say well see it's obvious and if you read the whole context Jesus is preparing those to be saved and bring it to fruition, to glorification. That's what he's doing. But he's also preparing those who will be damned to hell. And he's going to send them there. So some people are born to be saved and some people are born to burn. That's what people say here. The only problem with that is there are scriptures that say, "Uh, no, God is not willing that any should perish. Well, if he's not willing that any should perish, how is he preparing people for destruction? And and they take scriptures out of context and they say, no, it needs to fit my theological view. Therefore, whatever the scripture says must be reinterpreted in some other way to fit my theology. And I don't believe God is sending purposely anyone to help people choose to go there. They refuse to believe. That's why they go to hell. That's what scripture teaches. But if you want to take a scripture, cherry pick it, pull it out of context. and You've heard me say the one before in Ecclesiastes. I believe it's, uh, it's either chapter 9 or chapter 10. Wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything. All we need is money and a little bit of wine and we're good to go. That's not what scripture is teaching there. And it's t- totally taken out of context. So the last one here, monetary gain, like faith healers positive confession speak it into existence first timothy chapter six verse three says if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound instruction of our lord jesus christ and to godly teaching he is conceited and understands nothing He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. If I'm godly, I can make a lot of money. If I go out and start a church and I just tell people, like, uh, was it Peter Popoff that sent out the Barack Wallet? that if you just put money in it and send it back, the Lord will bless you and give you lots of money. I was thinking, why don't you just put more money in your own wallet and use that and have a barack wallet yourself instead of sending it to somebody else if you really believe it. And it just scams like that. It total scams. Morris Cirillo, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, all these people, they're out there just for the bucks is what they're out there for. And, and so people misinterpret scripture they want people to believe that this is the way it is when the scripture would be contrary who else do you know that did this the jews the jews misinterpreted the scripture over and over and over and said no you need to follow the traditions they've interpreted the scripture and that's the way you do it don't look in a mirror on the sabbath because you might do some work on your face and you're not supposed to do that don't carry a bundle of logs and start a fire and and of course that was actually in the old testament but there's other things that they would just strain it in that and swallow a camel you've heard that phrase before they would violate the law to the nth degree because they would misinterpret what's there for their own financial gain for their own purposes for their own power for their own theology and jesus of course we know condemned them for that we went through that with the woes that were listed now, at this point, you would probably say, so how do you do it? Well, let me tell you. I choose the literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, I know Eric Bryant has this memorized. I don't have it memorized. You can ask him to quote it for you. It says, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, therefore take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context study in the light of the related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. Did you catch all that? That simply that, that was written back in uh well the guy who wrote it was doctor David L. Cooper from eighteen eighty six to nineteen sixty five, and I found it with the Biblical Research Society. If you read a text and it says the sky is blue, what color is the sky? It's blue. If the first sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you have nonsense. That's a modification of what this guy said. And, and, and so if you look at the text, if it's just in a narrative form, just take it in the narrative form. You don't have to go into these deep theological discussions. It just turns into arguments. It's like, it, well, I hate saying this, but I'm going to say it. It says what it says. I've heard people use that in a wrong fashion. Uh, one guy that i heard you said he was in a bible study he left i I think i told you the story he left because women were allowed to speak and the scripture says i do not permit a woman to speak or to teach men is what it basically says to teach or have authority over men and because we allowed women to speak in the bible study to answer questions anathema that was it he was gone It's like, I think you're misinterpreting the scripture there. I think there were some women who prophesied in the church in the first century. You know, that was kind of going on. But people misinterpret the scripture for their own reasons. So some of these misinterpretations have led to things like there is no rapture. The rapture happens at the beginning of the tribulation. It happens in the middle of the tribulation. It happens before the wrath in the tribulation. It happens at the end of the tribulation. There is not a millennial reign of Christ. There is there is a thousand year reign of Christ. The world will come to a place of being better. And that's where Jesus just comes back. Because there is no rapture. There is no tribulation. Or the tribulation has already happened in the past. And it's not going to happen for us today. And we need to just set that to the side. And all these different interpretations which are out there now i eventually am going to be going through the rapture probably next week the rapture and the different views of the rapture the main views which are out there is the rapture is pre-tribulational mid-tribulational post-tribulational and uh pre-wrath and then not at all so i'll end up going through all of those to explain that and just to explain the rapture we're going to get to that the scriptures and we're going to review those there's this <clears throat> other view or other views out there about the millennium the millennium is when jesus comes back and rules and reigns on the planet earth this earth that we have here it will look a little bit different I think that some of the tectonic plates are going to move because the earthquakes are going to be so severe. Islands are going to disappear, no longer be able to go to the Caribbean, no longer be able to go to the Hawaii, unless he decides, I'm going to make another paradise out there and bring some more islands around. There may be a few islands left, but islands are going to disappear because the earthquakes are going to be so severe out there that's just one of the things that's going to happen during the millennial reign and we're going to be back here with jesus christ and there are those who don't believe the millennium is an actual thousand year reign of christ now even though it's delivered to us in the book of revelation in narrative form it says jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years they say ah no that's symbolic well ah no that's literal and that's how we're supposed to take it there are others that believe that and I'm one of them, Jesus will come back before the millennium. That's premillennial view. And then there are those that Jesus believe Jesus comes back at the end of the millennium. And then again, the amillennialists. They don't believe in the millennium at all, that Jesus is just going to come back, that's it, make everything new, and we're going to go on from there. <clears throat> and so all these confusing views are out there. But for the most part, I'm going to avoid the deep theological discussions because I'll have to give you toothpicks like I talked about earlier just to hold your eyes open. If you're really interested in that you can dig as deep as you want. You can excavate and dig thousand feet down and just kind of keep on going and listen to all the views because there are so many out there. You just need to know the proper interpretation of the scripture is the most important now i digress a little bit here what about how this timeline unfolds we know that jesus starts with the destruction of the temple if if we normally look from left to right when we read so i'm going to start over here over here is the destruction of the temple in 70 a.d then the next event we come to is right here it's the rapture of the church that's the next thing that's going to happen. It can happen anytime. It could happen today, next week. There's nothing left to be fulfilled prophetically for the rapture to take place. Jesus has told us about this event. And he says, be ready, be ever looking, be prepared. Once that happens, there may or may not be an interval of weeks, months, or years. Because the Antichrist comes on the scene somewhere in this area. It's kind of nebulous. It's not real clear. But we know there's going to be a definite time of seven years. That seven years is divided into two sections. The first section is the tribulation. The second section is considered the great tribulation. Right in the middle of that is the abomination of desolation and jesus talks about this in matthew 24 luke 21 mark chapter 13 daniel chapter 9 it's it's all through scripture and we're to pay attention to that because from that point you can count back three and a half years this is when it started and from that point you can count forward three and a half years i think it's 1260 days or 90 days in the book of Daniel. And when it comes to the end right there, there's, I think, a 40 day interval, and it's really all done at that point. And people don't know when Jesus is going to come back at that point somewhere in there. He's definitely coming back. But if you know the abomination of desolation, you know when the tribulation began, and you know when it's going to end. You have that time period that's right in there. Now, during that nebulous period you have the rapture you have the beginning of the tribulation here the three and a half years three and a half years then you have jesus that comes back you have in this nebulous period gog and magog the invasion out of ezekiel chapter 38 where iran and russia they get together some people think china's involved with a 200 million man army we we can get a little bit into that it may not be the case, but uh, it's interesting to look at that stuff. But there's going to be the conflict of Gog and Magog. For those of you who know, Russia is Gog and Magog, or, excuse me, Gog is the prince and Magog is the um, country of Russia, the area of Russia. Then you also have Persia, which is Iran, and we know where Iran is today. And they're linking up, they have all kinds of peace treaties with uh, Russia and they're getting together and also the Muslim countries in the area like Turkey. They've gone full Muslim and they're, they're all going to band together and they are going to come down and attack Israel. From the north, they will be destroyed on the mountains up there. <clears throat> and so that starts the tribulation period somewhere in there that the exact timing which comes first. If you look at Bible scholars, they'll go, well, now it's before all that or no, it's right after the Antichrist. It, we don't know for sure but as we go through that then the tribulation you hit the tribulation the midpoint of the tribulation definitely the wrath of god comes in that last three and a half year period now if you read the book of revelation you have three things you have the seals you have the trumpets and you have the bulls those are all judgments which come upon the earth and it gets really bad at the end of that three and a half year period people want to die and they won't be able to die they're tormented by demons meteors come down and they hit the earth and destroy one third of the grassland one third of the air one third of the water did you just hear about that one meter that they said oh there's one right out there it's almost gonna hit us did you hear about that like last week or the week before it was coming from out of our solar system from somewhere else and just shooting through and they said oh, We almost missed it. Well, just keep looking. Don't worry. We're not going to be hit with one like that until the tribulation period. I don't think we have to be so worried that the earth is going to be destroyed until then. But people are going to survive in that tribulation period. We also know that Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 14 has 145,000 Jewish men that are going to be witnesses, evangelists for Jesus Christ during that time. We know that one-third of Israel will escape. The rest are going to be killed. We know the people who become Christians during that time will probably be killed. But there are going to be a certain number of Gentiles which will survive and they'll repopulate the earth during that time, which leads to the thousand-year millennial reign. During that rapture period, we're in heaven. We go to heaven to be with the Lord. We meet him in the air, and we'll read those scriptures in a moment. And when we are in heaven and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, then we come back with him as he's riding his white horse, and he comes down at Armageddon. And Armageddon is the valley of Megiddo below Mount Carmel, and that's where blood is going to flow to the horse's bridle. It's just going to be really bad. All the armies are right there. The Antichrist is right there. And then at the beginning of that thousand-year reign that's there, Jesus takes the Antichrist, Satan, False prophet throws him into hell, binds him for a thousand years. Right at the end of that thousand years, you have them released for a short period of time. How short? I'm not quite sure. It doesn't tell us how short. A year? 10 years? 20 years? I, I, we don't know. But he's going to be released. He's going to get another army, and he's going to go up to Jerusalem and attack Jesus. And it's all over. Out of the pool, earth gets destroyed wrap up all the people great white throne judgment the books are open at that point if nobody's name is found written in the book of life by the way we're not being judged there we were judged way back here okay and i can explain that later but we are going to witness the great white throne judgment billions of people will be resurrected at that point everybody who has ever existed that is not already resurrected and the first resurrection will be at the great white throne judgment and the rest are saved and we're going to be there too, watching, kind of like a grandstand. How many people can you fit on the head of a pin? Billions and billions and billions. I'm just, just billions of people up there and how are you going to hear? What, what did he say? I, we're going to be able to hear everything even though there are billions of people and God is going to judge everything. Then Jesus is the one who's in charge of the judgment. Once that takes place, everything of course, has been destroyed already before the great white throne judgment. And so where are we? I don't know if we're hovering or I, I have no idea, but we're going to be somewhere where God is. After that, a new earth, a new heaven, no more star out there that we call the sun because God lights up our universe. And this place, it's, it's got to be big because the new Jerusalem, our new home, is going to come down out of heaven. And it is bright, it is gleaming, it is colorful, it's going to be loud. Jesus is in the midst of that. His throne is right there. Gates made of one pearl, 12 of them all the way around the outside. Foundations, 12 foundation stones, and they're all precious gems. And that's where we go on for the rest of eternity. The people who refuse God, who refuse Jesus Christ, will not be there. They're thrown into the lake of fire, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, the punishment lasts forever, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It is always going to exist. It is never going to be destroyed. That's, by the way, another misinterpretation of Scripture for those who say the doctrine of annihilation is a true doctrine. That means when you go to hell, God is a loving God. He won't make people suffer forever. Well, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says everlasting contempt and everlasting punishment that's forever and so that's the timeline from beginning 70 AD all the way through to the end of the new heavens and the new earth and we don't know what's going on from there it's going to be fantastic every single day by the way it's only going to be day we're going to go wow I just learned something new we're going to learn something new guess for how long forever well wait is there that much to know yet god is infinite his knowledge is just beyond just imagine if if you're counting time and i believe it will be a timeless existence even though it will be linear it it just goes on and on and on imagine going for a billion years how much more will you know after a billion years a billion times more than you knew At least before, yeah, multiple billions and trillions. And it's just going to go on. It's going to be so great to be up there. And we're never going to go, oh, I'm having a bad day. There are no such thing as bad days. It's always going to be a good day. So that's the timeline that is there. That is what we have in our future. That's what we're looking forward to. I'm just ready for the rapture. I just want to go. It's like, okay, I'm ready. Paradise, here I come. And hopefully you're waiting for that as well. Now, just a parenthetical thought here. Nobody goes who has not asked Jesus to be their Lord and Savior and that you have confessed your sins and say, forgive me, if that hasn't happened, you're not going. Anyone in the world, if they haven't done that, they are not going. That's the only requirement, that we believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And we must believe it in our heart and confess with with our mouth. And so any family member that you know, if they have not done that, they're not going. And you can tell them that plainly. Say, you know, if you haven't said this, you're not going to go, but you're going to exist forever. And I don't want you to exist forever in the wrong place. Now with that, I digress again. The rapture. Let's look at the rapture verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 50 turn over in your Bibles. So i'm going to give you four different sections of scriptures first corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 50 first thessalonians chapter 4 beginning in verse 13 john chapter 14 beginning in verse 1 in isaiah chapter 26 beginning in verse 19 so Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 52. It says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about our bodies that we possess right now. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. And this word mystery it refers to something that was not previously known or even hinted about there's the mystery of the church the church was a mystery this is also a mystery no one ever knew about this before we will not all sleep which means die remember especially in the book of corinthians this idea of sleep is what the believer goes through when they actually cease to live on this earth because it's just temporary you're going to wake up but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. So right now we're not immortal in these bodies, but we will become immortal. And you don't have to be bitten by Dracula. You will be able to be immortal When Jesus just gives you the new body. You know, that's the big thing out there, the Twilight series or whatever it was. Now, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. It says there, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, apparently they had gotten some word or some letter that was supposed to be written by Paul that stated the day of the Lord had already come. And they were also worried about those who had already died. Well, they missed the rapture. And Paul wants to bring them a little comfort. Don't worry about this. And he says, those who have died in the Lord or those who have fallen asleep that are believers are going to be raised first. They're going to, quote unquote, come out of their graves. I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know if they beam me up Scotty type of thing from the coffins. I don't know how God reconstitutes the bodies if they've been thrown into the ocean and been consumed or rotted in the ground. I don't know how he's going to do that, but he's going to do that. He's going to reconstitute those bodies and change them in the process to be immortal. Those who are dead first and then those who are left and remain, we don't die at all. Hopefully I can say we don't die at all. It may be the next generation or the generation after that, but instantly we will be transformed into our new bodies if you've seen the movies about the rapture where the clothes are just laying on the chair and the the ring is on the table the the and the coffee cup is sitting there and you're going the guy's going where's my wife and the wife is gone and the, the the pilots disappear and the planes fall down and all of that stuff is taking place that's how it's going to happen now the numbers of christians that exist in the world, it's certainly millions. Certainly millions. And it, I don't know, it could be up to a billion. Only God knows. But imagine that many people exiting all at once. Is there going to be like mayhem on the earth? The world will probably say, oh, see, it's extraterrestrials. Have you seen how they've been ramping up the extraterrestrial news out there? I mean, it's just kind of kicking up. The military has said, yeah, we acknowledge there are UFOs out there. And then there's these snake UFOs which are out there and these discs, and they're getting video everywhere. That that could be certainly a possibility. I don't know if that's going to be it or not, but the world will come along and say, see, they came, V. they're eating the people. Well, Whatever the case might be, I have no idea how it's going to happen with the world, but certainly the world at that point has gotten rid of or has it has been taken away the influence of the holy spirit in believers restraining evil and at that point the evil is just going to be let loose to do whatever it wants now the next passage john chapter 14 in verse 1 says do not let your hearts be troubled you believe in god believe also in me my father's house has many rooms if that were not so would I have told you that I'm, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. What kind of dwelling place he's making for us, I do not know what it is. I, some people say, well, it's a, a new body. Well, it could be a new body. Well, no, it's, The New Jerusalem are going to exist. And I don't know if that's the case. But he's making a place for us. It's taken a long time, 2,000 years. You know, it must must be palatial up there. Certainly it will be. But we're going to go to be with him. And this was not just for the disciples. This is for all of us. And the final one is a little more controversial. Some people say, no, I don't think that's the rapture. I'm going to let you guys decide if it is or not. Isaiah chapter 26, beginning in verse 19. It says, but your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Now, this would obviously be a resurrection of those who are in the graves. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. It's obvious that people are going to come out of the graves in Israel. That's what this is referring to. It says, go, my people, which are the Jews, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until this wrath has passed by. Now, it's not exclusive to the Jews. It's all those who are his people. Are we the people of God? The answer is yes, we are the people of God. So by extension, not just the Jews in the context it was written, it was for them, but by extension, it is for us as well. And it says, Go hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. When is God's wrath coming upon the earth? In the three and a half years of the great tribulation. That is going to be God's wrath. God has had it. He's done. He's going to judge the earth. And there's going to be terrible consequences come at that time. It says, Verse 21, see, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people on the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. In other words, everyone gets resurrected. So I believe this is referring to the time of the rapture, going to heaven, hiding yourself in the chamber until his wrath has passed by. And if you understand how the Jewish wedding worked, This makes total sense. Now, we are the bride of Christ, correct? And I'm going to explain the rest of this next week because it's time for communion. The marriage in Jewish tradition, the way that it was handled, it is exactly what the rapture is. And if you have the cultural context of all of that, it just adds so much to the understanding of what is here. And that's part of the interpretation. And if you look up rules for how to interpret the scripture some people will say well there are seven rules for interpreting scripture others will say no there are 16 rules for interpreting scripture it's just mostly read what it says if you're familiar with poetry similitudes metaphors those types of things you'll be able to do it yourself it's just most people don't spend the time to sit down and go well what exactly does this mean and god wants us to God wants us to make sure that we have this information down, that we are aware of our destiny, whether we are alive or we have fallen asleep in the Lord, that we will be resurrected. And you can trust that these things in biblical terms are trustworthy and true. It will come to pass. And because we know this, this should motivate us to be who Christ wants us to be. Now, what we are going to do at this time, for those of you who are going to be involved in the rapture, hopefully it's all of you who are in here, we're going to participate in receiving communion because we are recognizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus did this on the night that he was betrayed. He gave the bread, he gave the cup, he told his disciples to take it, said this is my body and this is my blood, and it's for our salvation. And so he went to the cross and we're simply remembering that. At this time, We're going to go ahead and have the worship leader come on up and and sing. And the men will be passing out the elements that are here. And if you could dim the middle lights, that would be great. And I'll come back up and we'll say a prayer uh, for the elements.